I would like to introduce a new topic, perhaps relatively briefly, but I will continue on this for several independent podcasts or lectures. And it's on the subject of what I consider the three basic elements of in the analysis of human character or human affairs. And also they were they are the three genres that Virgil picked to organize his career with the exception that I, I make a slight alteration on the idea of pastoral to expand, expand it to a more general term, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I've been thinking over the past four or five years about whether the division of pastoral, Georgic, and heroic, which is the triad of Virgil, some call, sometimes called the rota, the wheel, because it was imitated as a career structure or as a way to analyze human character many times since Virgil's day, especially in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. The rota was supposed to be a wheel, a complete wheel, showing the three chief aspects of human social action or the three chief modes of describing human character. And to simplify this, let me just say that it was always pictured in the Middle Ages, for example, as a wheel in which there was a triangle internalized. And in that, and the points of that triangle, you saw a farmer who represented the Georgic, the laboring ideal. You saw a knight that represented the military ideal. And you saw uh, uh, a a priest or a philosopher or or a priest slash philosopher who maintained the pastoral idea. In fact, the pastoral idea has within it a kind of pun. For on the one hand, it's about pastoral scenery that is rustic uh, maintenance of sheep. Uh, by a shepherd, and the shepherd with his staff is a natural symbol, but pastoral also means an ecclesiastic term, meaning one who oversees his flock, a priest or a minister. And so these became conflated, but also we will find that in some respects it was a natural connection between the, the shepherd and the priest. The shepherd and the priest were sometimes substituted or at least connected closely to the poet who was thought of as one who both meditated upon spiritual matters and who lived aside from laborious activity like the farmer or the craftsman. The third category, uh, after Georgic and Pastoral, the third category, of course, was the heroic, and that was the ideal military character, usually represented in the Middle Ages by a knight, in antiquity by a Roman soldier, of course, and under different guises down to modern times as the United States Marine or whoever you want to put in that slot of heroism. 
Now, each of these three characters represented a, a, a territory of human experience. The territory of human experience that was associated with the farmer was labor. And the territory associated with the uh, the pastoral was the the poet, the priest, the, med uh, the man of meditation. We'll come back to that. And then, of course, the, 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 the territory of the heroic man was war. So we had the discourse of war, the discourse of labor, and the discourse of what might be called the universal private man. And if we think of the universal private man, aside from work and aside from war, then we think of what? Well, we think of a person who's uh, spiritual, or a person who's in love, or a person who's an artist. And that became, that became the general territory and division of the aspects of the pastoral. I prefer calling the pastoral the lyric position in the triangle. Because the lyric means a first person, uh, an artist, and one who's interested in private and subjective matters, like love, eternity, uh, the nature of life. And it's obvious, if you think for a moment, that these three categories, the, 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 the category of the private man's universal interest, love, and meditation on ultimates, the soldier or the hero's interest in war and and uh, battle and the, the and then the, the the farmer's interest in in uh, labor that these constitute it seems to me and I've been thinking about this for a long long time maybe all the possibilities of the fundamental human areas of action because it seems to me that aside from practical activities work uh, private activities like religion, meditation, art, and uh, heroic activities like military, the activities that have to do with the world of violence and battle. Aside from those three, there really is no fourth major territory of human activity. And so this Virgilian rota seemed to me to be a, oddly a key, a key to understanding the human uh, nature as a whole or different aspects under which we can describe human beings. Now, as it turns out in the tradition, there's a kind of competition among poets and artists and theorists as to which of these categories should be the fundamental, absolute center of human activity. In other words, in which of these aspects, the private, meditative, or spiritual man, the lover, uh, or the soldier, the ideal heroic man of action and self-sacrifice, or the laborer, the one who works and, and uh, in effect, through his organized activity, feeds and, and preserves the society as a whole. Which of these is most fundamental? Now, if we think of it in practical terms, we'll probably say the farmer, because we'd all be dead without farm activity or some and all the other forms of labor which we depend on for our normal everyday existence 
But that simply means that was man taken under the aspect of practicality. And, of course, that, that, that does have a great necessity, and we could not live without it. And yet, it's almost as true to say we could not live without love, without spiritual desires, without private and subjective forces, which are just as important as a public action or practical activity. And on the other hand, the oldest, it seems, and the most quintessential of human actions, if we think of the Homeric world, or if we think of the world of the Mahabharata, or if we think of the the uh, the Bellini, the ancient Russian literature, or the or the Kalevala, or the Song of Roland, or or the earliest English language things, especially especially the 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 Icelandic and Old English writing, um, like Beowulf. If we think of all of these, uh, then we think of a very ancient, special, original character uh, of the heroic type. And we think of almost, uh, there's something almost original and primitive and, 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 uh, functionally early about the heroic type and the heroic ideal. So, if we spin this wheel, we see that we can analyze human beings under any of this aspect. If we spin the wheel as a moral, and as a moral, uh, chart, we'll find that courage, the, the virtus of the Romans, courage, uh, is the fundamental and, and, uh, important virtue. And upon it depends the survival of the community in times of conflict. If we look at the Georgic side, the practical side, by the way, Georgic comes from Georgos, which means farmer. It's one of the two Greek words for farmer. If we look at the Georgic side, we find that we see laborers, craftsmen, uh, people that work with their hands. Um, we see we see something without which practical life, that the whole practical life without which we would not be able to survive. There's an ethical ideal connected to labor as there is with the hero, heroism. If courage is the heroic ideal, then what is the ideal of labor? Is it, is it, um, what? Is it humility? Perhaps not. Is it prudence? Prudent action? Uh, what is the deepest virtue of the working man, of the laborer? What constitutes the moral ground of his service as an ideal? It's a very interesting question. It has to be, has to be considered closely. What are the ideals of the private man, the man, the spiritual, the poetic, the amorous man? And those ideals seem to come down to an ethics of, of, uh, what, on one hand, justice, living justly, thinking justly, and carefully, but also, on the other hand, 
some concept of balance, which maybe mean prudence, uh, a control of one's, for example, one's private lusts, so that the amorous side of the private individual does not become destructive. Now, in each one of these categories, there, a literature grew up. In other words, in the, in the days before history writing, before philosophy as we now know it, before prose, all of these three had developed a language of their own in poetry. The language of the heroic poem, as in Homer, uh, was, was that of a code, a, very, a, a code of a very small group of preternaturally gifted soldiers. Often the number is seven, as in the seven Greek heroes, or the seven against Thebes, or the magnificent seven in the modern movie, or the uh, the seven samurai in in Kurosawa. That and seven is not a necessary number, but it's for some reason it's a common number. And we have these heroic people that group together as peers, and these heroic peers form a very special society. And everybody outside their preternaturally gifted uh, culture of strength and skill and courage is excluded. And there is, interestingly enough, no female members of this category. Uh, just as the ideal farmer was not a female figure in antiquity, but there are female laborers, of course, but at least the farmer was a male figure in its original. So the male figure of the poet and the... And the um, and the priest, and, or the spiritual type, or the lover, of course, could be either male or female. But the private type also were predominantly male in antiquity, because we had a paternally oriented imaginative structure. And in history, there became the feminizing of each of the three in the triangle. There became the Amazonian soldier or the powerful independent woman as in as in uh for example the woman ally of Aeneas, Camilla, in the last books of the Aeneid. And there are other there are other examples of that. And of course women laborers are obviously a large class in history as time develops. And then there becomes the woman who's the lover, the poet. And in fact, in the lyric position as I've given, the name I've given it, the lyric, the type of literary construct, just as the Homeric concept was the type for the heroic, the the love poem, which I might call the sapphic anacreontic, or the anacreontic sapphic poem, in which you had two dominant lyrical poems of antiquity, Anacreon and Sappho, who were both, had a relatively equal reputation as poets of love and privacy, of private virtues. And so originally we had the Homeric type, the Sapphic and Acreontic type, and we had the Hesiodic, because Hesiod was the first poet. He's a near contemporary of Homer. Hesiod was the first poet of the laborer. In the works and days, an obvious title for labor, in the works and days of Hesiod, the laborer, especially the farmer, but also the the the, the uh, craftsman and the landowner and people of practical interest, shipmakers, etc., 
These are now considered in, in his world, in quotation marks, the heroes of this world. And it's very interesting that from the opening gambit of the works and days, it was pointedly and sharply opposed to the values of war. On its very, in its very opening lines, it says there are two types of competition. There are two kinds of war, in other words. The one is the war that has fought in battle, and it's destructive, and it's the dark, um, destructive side, the side that we associate with gods of disorder, like Ares and, and uh, Eris, his atmospheric partner. And there's, so there's, the, from, the, from the point of view of the Georgics, suddenly we see in the opening an opposition to war, War produces disorder, war produces death, war makes the world of labor more difficult. It destroys the farmer's fields, it disquiets the order of work, and it, and it intervenes against the practical. And therefore, of the two kinds of com competition, the best kind is the competition of laborers. And it's interesting that in the oldest Western book on work, competition between craftsmen and between farmers is considered the seed from which grows all the benefits of, of labor. And without that competition between artisans and inventors and farmers and laborers, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't produce excellence. We wouldn't produce the arete, the excellence of each action, because the competition is what spurs us on to new heights. So that concept of competition and labor that we think of is, for example, one of the principles of modern capitalism, which is a Georgic thesis, a Georgic theory, capitalism. It's a theory about labor, as Marxism is, as Keynesianism is. Those theories of labor all tend to deal with the question of competition. Who gets to do the labor? How's the labor divided? And, and, and what's the proper arrangement of the forces of labor? Because right in the Hesiodic poem, we see already that it's competition that's fundamental. And not the competition and conflict of war, but of labor. So we ask ourselves, we, we have these three. We have lyric poems, which are largely about love and leisure and wine bibbing, wine drinking. Uh, we have these three, we have this, and these represent the private man. Because when we see an Acker and Sappho, they're talking about their subjective delights. I'm in love with the beautiful man across the table. He electrifies me, Sappho explains. Or Anacreon saying, I'm an older man, but I wish I had the, the power and strength to make love to a beautiful girl like I did one time uh, when, when youth was like a toy that I could play with. And, and we see in Anacreon and Sappho an, an analysis of love and sometimes drinking, which is very much associated with amorous relations because... The, the private man that is dealing with pleasures and which is seeking certain pleasures often finds it in wine or later on in history in some other uh, uh, some other hallucinogenic or entertaining drug. So we find we find and we find in just as we found in Hesiod. In, in the early, in, in just a generation or so after Homer, or maybe even contemporary with him, we find this opposition to the, to the military. We find in the poems of Sappho, and in the poems of Anacreon, and Alcaeus, 
and many other lyric poets, all the way down to late antiquity, we find, I find, by my own discovery, although I'm sure others know it, that there's a kind of signature in the lyric poem of an opposition to war. Sappho begins her greatest poem by saying, some like to travel on ships over the sea, seeking new ports and battle, and others like the sound of the hoofs of horses on the ground, which she's describing their cavalry force. In other words, some like different forms of war, but I like love. And here she sets out to distinguish herself from the language, I think, more, most specifically, directly of Homer, but also of all martial or epic discourse. And this proemium, this opening of the poem, this introductory, becomes something that is found, in my opinion, in about one out of five or six of all the lyric passages in the Greek lyrics of antiquity, which are mostly fragmentary. But of those which we can read and interpret, we find commonly there's a signature of anti-heroic discourse. So both the laboring poems of the Georgic tradition of Hesiod and the, and the lyric poems of Anacreon and Sappho seem to have within them some kind of disposition against the heroic. And this makes sense because war is the enemy of both private perfection in, in, in pleasure and in uh, love as it is the enemy of labor. So we see by this triangulation that we can start to analyze human behavior and human life as a whole with it. But we can also see something which I think has been missed by most readers who have thought that Virgil's arrangement was merely accidental. And we, we can see that he was doing a, an interpretation of the Greeks. After all, he, his Aeneid is a reworking of the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer. Obviously, his Georgians are reworking of Hesiod with also some consideration of Lucretius and other Roman poems that preceded him. And it's obvious also that his pastoral poems, although not lyric poems in the sense that Sappho and Anacreon or Alcaeus or Archilochus were lyric poets, but lyric in the sense that it was an analytic of the lyric state that constitutes his eclogues, his third category, the pastoral poems. And what I mean by that is taking the same meter that he took in the Georgics and the and the and the Aeneid, the hexameter, he does not he what he does is he 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 really analyzes and and breaks up all the all the elements of of the lyric. In other words, it's the analytic of the lyric. There's the there's lovers that are competing in dialogue. There's love potions, which which are used to to frighten or injure the person who's mistreated you in love. There's the memory of lost love in the second eclogue. There's the memory of, and it has, and it begins in number one, the first of all of our eclogues, with a signature against the heroic and the military by saying, "I have been, I am now been uprooted from my beautiful land." by war, and one of the characters in number one has survived by some agreement with the government and is still living in the leisure underneath the, the shady limbs of the tree while while the second character of the first eclogue has been destroyed by warfare. 
and is now a refugee from his own beautiful from his own beautiful home. But the the ten eclogues have taken on the whole are not primarily about labor, but they're primarily about art, love, pleasure, and it, all of its aspects, as if we had a complete analysis of the lyric modes. And so instead of being the direct first person lyric of the Greek tradition, it's an, it's an analytic device by which we can see all the forms that, that lyric life takes. And uh, that was the only to be expanded in subsequent historical periods. So what am I saying? Let's, let's summarize for today. I'm saying that I have these three categories to contend with. One could argue that the highest human value is courage. There were Romans that argued that. Stoicism sometimes made that point. Some There were philosophies of courage. And some people believe that without military prowess and the defensive power of, of, the, of the heroes, the heroes of this world, some people would include in modern times the soldier and the police power. But without that power, we'd be ruined. We wouldn't be able to either farm or find love and pleasure. None of the other things would work. And some people say it's the highest, it's the highest good of mankind, heroic values, that those great heroes, the Achilles and, and Roland and Beowulf and, uh, Arjuna, that these are the highest figures in the tradition, that, that their skill is preternatural and their fellowship so uniquely superior and above. And they are in fact above by their power and their might and their destined superiority uh, to dominate over the world either of pleasure or of practical labor. And that argument's been made. And we often see that Homer and, and Virgil's, as the author of the Aeneid, and Homer, the author of the Iliad, are considered the highest uh, achievements of the human imagination. And it goes around, this happens throughout the European tradition. And the epic of that scale comes into Italy through through Tasso, which is also a military poem, or Ariosto, which is a kind of comic heroic poem. And what we find is either comical or serious versions of the heroic discourse dominating in European culture. And the heroic poem can, as often said as Dryden said, to be the greatest achievement of the human imagination. And and this is an interesting problem because if it's the greatest achievement of the human imagination is courage of the kind the hero demonstrates the greatest virtue of the human race. And if so, does the heroic code by which heroes live, is that the code of the highest moral value? Is that the code which the greatest and highest person or man should aspire to? Very difficult question. We'll talk more about that in the comments I make in my second podcast about the, about the rota. Or if it, that is not the highest activity, our practical activities, uh, the exchanges of the household, of the labor, of the family, uh, of, of, you know, of all things practical by which we survive and by which we manipulate and control nature. It's for that reason that the discourse of the past, uh, of the, excuse me, of the Georgic often includes 
not only the rusticity of the farmer in the countryside, but an interest in nature as a whole. And nature as a living organism, nature as a kind of environment in which we survive becomes a kind of part and parcel of the discourse of the Georgic. And because nature is an interest and the natural world and the world in which we live and breathe and practice our daily arts, because nature is so important in this world, it, it might be said to be true that the sciences themselves are, are given birth by the Georgic element. And it's very true that Hesiod, even in the works and days, shows some of the rudiments of engineering, of inventiveness, of building, of scientific interest. And it's interesting to note that the physicists that followed after Hesiod, uh, the physical theorists like uh, Anaxagoras and uh, and uh, Thales and the other pre-Socratic philosophers, philosophers who were writing before Socrates, who really were all physicists, interested in physical nature and cosmology. It's interesting that they all imitated the Hesiod language and the Hesiodic discourse by writing, often writing examiner poems to, descri to describe examiner poems in the Hesiodic mode to describe their own discoveries. So it may be that we will find that science of a certain kind, a certain kind of interest in nature, and science that, that is interested in nature, may, be, may have fallen under the Hesiodic area, may be in fact an extension of the Georgic ideal. And on the other hand, what would be, what would be the territory of the, of the lyric self? Well, it must be some ideal of private virtue and private joy, of what might be called the discourse of happiness. What constitutes the perfect individual man or woman? What is necessary to produce a universally uh, right, just, and fit, and happy human individual? Does amorous life, does love, in other words, erotic or spiritual, is it necessary? Uh, or is self-control and balance and a, and a kind of um, temperance just as required to deal with the balances of our pleasures? Or is it finding the highest pleasure? What is the highest individual and private pleasure? Is it amorous? Is it intellectual? Is it spiritual? And this debate of the private man in his state of subjectivity, trying to find the center of his soul, not the center of his bodily practice in the field of labor, and not the thumos, or inner heart and strength of the hero, but a kind of soulful balance of private interest, the relation of pleasure to contemplation, to love, and, and what might be called the realms of privacy, the realms of the individual, from which we deduce the concept of the good life. Maybe that's a subject, and if that's true, then the Socratic philosophies, the philosophies of the self, like Plato, or in the ethical work of Aristotle, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and these people then would all fall under not a Georgic category, not a, not a heroic category, but they would really be in the lyric territory. And therefore the lyric, which began with the symposiastic poetry of Anacreon, where one meets with one's social peers 
and to drink and to discuss pleasure and love can develop into the platonic symposiastic and where one has dialogues to find out what the good life is, the just and happy life. And you can see there's then a close connection between Greek lyric poetry and Greek private philosophy, the, the, what might be called ethical philosophy. Very different from the philosophy of, of the physical cosmology of the Georgic poets. And very different than the heroic poems of Homer or, or Virgil. So we have these three categories. And ultimately, I think I'm going to ask the question, which of these categories comes first? Which is the one we judge the others by? Is there a hierarchy of them? Is the first and most important thing in life the practical, the laboring? Is it the heroic, the military? Is it the private life of pleasure and spirituality and meditation and balance? Which of these, the private, the practical, or the heroic, which of these constitutes the first and primary and definitive role in this hierarchy because after all they were in competition from the earliest times when the Greeks and this remained built into them in the later European languages this endless hostility and battle between these three ideals and we will find as we go on deeper into this problem we will find that there are philosophies of each for example Marxism capitalist theories that we see in, in Smith, Adam Smith, and and Friedman and others, and uh, Keynesianism and other forms of the oikonomicus, the economy of the household or the country, that these all seem to fall under the concept of labor and the division of labor and what labor is valued and how it and how we produce out of all the laboring interests equity. And these things seem to fall under the Georgic umbrella. In the same way the debate over happiness and private joy seems to fall under the lyric and the heroic is its own concept of mastery and particular talent and skill. We're going to be talking about this triad in several lectures. We're going to talk about how it affects the history of, of uh, philosophy and various philosophical schools and attitudes. We're going to see how it affects the history of, of poetry, of fiction, of film, because I think it's true that these categories are, from a Western point of view at least, fundamental and probably cannot be reduced uh, in it to an any more fundamental or elemental design of choice than these three. And we'll be getting, we'll be trying to get to the bottom of that in the succeeding podcast lectures on the rota, that is, the triangle of the heroic, the Georgic, and the lyric.